You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 73 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Today, we are joined by an early A Life in Ruins guest, Dr. David Anderson, to talk about the origins of early states in Mesoamerica. Dr. Anderson first appeared on our show for episode 11 to talk about pseudoscience and archaeology, and we are very excited to have him back on the show today to discuss with us the real perpetrators of Central American megalithic structures, as well as ceremonial centers. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's great to be back on the show. It's good to be back in the semester. Radford University started classes last week, and so we are in the thick of introducing a whole new crop of people to archaeology. Nice. I can tell by the pottery on your shelf back there that you are, in fact, an archaeologist. Well, to be fair, yes, I do have There's pottery on the shelf behind <laughs> me, but that is my wife's pottery, who is also an archaeologist. So we are like the oh. two-fur household over here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was good having you the first time because it's a breath of fresh air to hear some logic after, you know, hearing so many things sent to me and that you see on TV about, you know, Hancockian and, and extraterrestrial things. I got an email just the other day about how about some dinosaur figurines from Mexico that show humans riding the backs of dinosaurs. Classic. I got a very earnest email about how those are, are true or real because there are some similar figurines from the Middle East somewhere. You know, there, there's just a lot of stuff to weed through that and the, the ship never stops going forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think we had you on 20, it was last year, like the early early last year obviously some things have happened in the world since then yes small small pandemics things like that has anything happened since then or you've just been fighting pseudoscience and teaching and raising the next generation of archaeologists we have definitely been staying home a lot more and I was able to get out and do a field season this last summer with Radford. We did a, our field school, our archaeological field school this summer here in Virginia. We were working at a 19th century Appalachian farmstead site. It was really fantastic. It was fun to be working with Appalachian cabins. And I, I had a new experience this summer. Uh, you guys know what archaeology is like. Where we were excavating, there was a mother vulture who was very protective over her nest. And, you know, we had to work out an agreement of when we could excavate <laughs> and when she could sit on the eggs. And it all it all worked out and she didn't harass us too much. But and the, the baby vultures were just fine and hatched before we left. But it was, you know, archaeology comes with its own in, unique joys. Yeah. Wildlife is definitely something they don't teach about in undergrad, but you always have to deal with <laughs> You guys find any cool stills or anything out there? And <laughs> No stills, but you know, honestly, one of the coolest things about that project, especially with the students there, it was really a great excavation to show just how active sediments are. Uh, so, you know, we were working at sites that are only about 100 years old, which is pretty recent for most of us. And yet we were finding things, you know, a solid 30, 40 centimeters down in our shovel tests, including, you know, that are obviously recent. Like we, we found a portion of a leather shoe with metal nails in it. And that was a solid 30 centimeters down below the surface. And so it was, it was a really great moment just to talk about how active sediments are and landscapes are when you're digging. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in that area, in the eastern woodlands. So kind of gearing us towards the topic at hand tonight, the 
origins of ancient Civ or the rise of early states in Mesoamerica. You're a myotologist. You have ex- done extensive work in the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Did a whole bunch of survey and covering a bunch of sites around the region. And I took the chieftain's course with you, in which we did talk a lot about these Mesoamerican. What is a chiefdom? Service says it's redistribution. Renfrew adds accumulation. Pocketbot says it's all irrelevant. What is a chiefdom? Monuments and stratified. More goods bared when people die. Chiefs on mounds placed way up high. What is a chiefdom? Is it network? We don't know. Is it corporate? We don't know. How many people? We don't know. What is a chiefdom? Spiro trades with Mississippians. Rapping Nui built colossal heads. Kuso wasn't really all that big. What is a chiefdom? I'm just screaming Leventa. But <laughs> as it goes, Leventa has to be, it happens to be part of the broader Olmec culture, which many of you guys might know for the Olmec colossal heads. And so I think the Olmec, they start around like 1500 BC is kind of when we start seeing the appearance. We definitely get occupation in the Gulf Coast of Mexico where the Olmec are located by 1500 BC, if not earlier. You know, as all these things go, it's a little bit of when you want to count, you know, what starts as Olmec and and when it all builds up. San Lorenzo, which is the earlier of the, the different Olmec centers, Definitely is it is center like you know it becomes a political center by about 1200 BC, but we absolutely get earlier occupation in that region. Gotcha. And so, what's leading populations in the area to kind of congregate in larger population centers? Is there a climatic event going on, or is it someone has learned to domesticate something? We see a long, gradual process in Mesoamerica because we are primarily dealing with the origins and development of farming villages around maize. And maize, you know, is, starts as a wild plant that we know today as teosinte. And the domestication of maize was slow and long and hard. And so we have some of the earliest evidence of domesticated maize going back to about 5000 BC in the form of pollen. But from from best we can tell, you know, it's the earliest corn cobs that I'm familiar with at this point come from a cave called Gila Nakitz in Oaxaca, Mexico. And oh, I did not double check my dates before tonight, but they're about 3500 BC. And those corn cobs are about the size of my pinky finger. Like they are little tiny, tiny things. And it so there there's clearly like this very long, slow trajectory until maize all of a sudden starts to become a more viable food source for people. And so we start to see sort of all over Mesoamerica, the emergence of farming villages about 2000 BC. But then it takes like a solid thousand years even then where they slowly get larger and they're small, they're dispersed. There's not too many of them. They're all over Mexico. The Olmec are a funny thing. So like many of the listeners may have heard of the Olmec as America's first civilization, as sort of a label that's been thrown on them many a time. And this is basically because they made giant stone sculptures. You know, they're, they, they have these beautiful colossal heads, which are incredible. The so-called tabletop altars, which were probably actually used as thrones by Olmec rulers and leaders, are amazing. Olmec statuary is fantastic. There's a long-standing old-school argument here that's been going on since the 40s. You know, what's been called the mother culture versus sister cultures development of Mesoamerica, 
where you know there, there's been one camp from a very for a very long time that has argued that the Olmec are the origin point for Mesoamerican civilization, and everything that comes after that sort of flows from them or derives from them in some way, shape, or form. And especially since the 70s on, there has been a growing call for sister cultures to say, you know what, what's what you see happening in the Olmec heartland is happening all over Mesoamerica. It's just not quite as overtly grandiose when it comes to those really cool big pieces of stone. I am firmly in the sister culture camp, particularly because my, my, my PhD dissertation research was on something from more or less the same time period in the Maya world where like, hey, we got a ton of stuff. There's even evidence that the Maya world where I was working in my dissertation was trading with Laventa, a later Olmec capital. It's minimal evidence. It's, we can talk about that. But but there's evidence that there's some interaction going on between them. And there's nothing Olmec-like over in the Maya region, really. And so I'm kind of like fir- firmly in that sister culture camp. And really until sort of like the early 2000s, the sister culture camp was kind of completely taking over. But in the last 10, 15 years, the mother culture camp has kind of gotten a resurgence. And there's Increasing evidence for, you know, there's a lot of elite and royal imagery that we see in the Olmec heartland that does start to get copied by other people in some ways. And so there, there's definitely give and take going on here. You know, this is this is one that it take a lot to push me out of sister cultures. In fact, I don't think there's any reason to push me out of sister cultures ultimately. But maybe the Olmec were more influential than I wanted to give them credit for five, 10 years ago in some sense. So this sister mother culture thing kind of idea is that the main points of evidence are tracing cultural traits or things we find in the archaeological record and putting like a time stamp to them and trying to trace where those things spread essentially, right? Is that is that kind of the argument? Yeah, it's very much an artistic discussion and about artistic style. And this is actually continues to be a problem. If, if listeners are interested in the Olmec, it's kind of still a really big problem because during the middle formative or middle pre-classic period, there's a very common style and sort of, you know, some of the more example, more common things people think of are like, what's been called a were-jaguar, which is sort of a quasi-human, quasi-feline creature that many people use. And there are other elements of uh, shark teeth and other things that show up in this design patterns. And it's found in the Olmec heartland at at La Venta, at San Lorenzo. And it's been called, this design has been called Olmec for a long time. In the 70s, people started to make the argument that maybe we should call this a middle formative horizon style. That is, that it's a shared style and not necessarily indicative of political control or influence. And truly, you know, we have some, uh, you mentioned San Jose Magote to me, uh, one of the things we might want to talk about here. This is, again, a formative period site in Oaxaca in southern Mexico. And there's some really cool examples of this middle formative horizon style showing up there, possibly earlier than it shows up at Olmec sites. And so there's definitely this sort of big question, you know, what's going on in middle formative Mesoamerica? Lots of people are sharing iconographic imagery. Does that mean there's a shared understanding and shared belief systems? Does that mean there's political control and dominance coming out of one area? It's it's definitely one of these great sort of archaeological conundrums where, you know, what is the chicken and the egg going on here, really? Like, who's starting this? And I think we've got enough at this point to really push back, you know, against 
Olmec dominated narratives. And, and actually, let me, before I slide past to this, I was saying that some of the in, listeners might have encountered this. It's really common, especially if you go to museums or pick up art history books sometimes about this, to see things labeled as Olmec. And a lot of times what they mean is stylistically, this is middle formative. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it comes from San Lorenzo or La Venta. And so it's, it's really challenging. I, I, this, I totally have this. I've had this a couple of times with students who want to do research papers where they come to me with like, I've got a whole bunch of Olmec sources. And I'm like, all of this is from Oaxaca. It's from another part of Mexico. And it's like, there, it's a little bit hard to sort all of this stuff out because of the way that it's been talked about for so long. So, so you're talking about like the geographic location being Olmec or something like that and mixing it with time and then mixing it with artistic expression. You can easily see how that gets confused, yeah. especially for folks who are really interested in the art part portion of that. Yeah. I, we are straight up in here of what is a culture, <laughs> yeah. what is an archaeological culture, what's a living culture, what's cultural, what are the relationships between cultures, what is shared, what is not shared. Like, yeah, it's... This is stuff that, frankly, you can get confused about in present day when you have written sources <laughs> yeah, prepared to. Yeah, I kind of don't know where to go here because it's pretty clear like Scar and Fagan from this ancient Civ book I'm reading are definitely in the mother culture camp. So I basically have a whole chapter of, of uh, Olmec influence that I, I'm not sure what to do with at the moment. Is there a – I know this is like kind of unethical sometimes. Well, not unethical, just like odd to do. But is there like a comparative old world culture that is like a sister or mother culture kind of – comparison to get a reference because um, i do hear it like aztecs like romans and like mayans greeks but that's like not correct you know yeah you know i think there are some comparable things going on if you look at egypt and mesopotamia and there's sort of a, a push back and forth of who started writing first and who is in, being inspired by which side okay. and so that there's absolutely you know I'm, I'm i'm not up to date on the latest arguments on you know which one started writing first and in, in which you know case here but this is definitely a classic like yeah who influenced who sort of story and you know I, it's it's hard. When I was in grad school, our, our advisor, Will Andrews, warned us a lot about my sightism. Like, well, at my site, it's like this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. We can get really myopic and focus on our sort of information sources and ignore other people's. But I want to do it anyway. <laughs> you know, like I wrote my PhD dissertation on Stobo, which is a middle pre-classic, middle formative Maya site that was not just one site, but was surrounded by an entire regional occupation of over, you know, 90 to 100 other middle pre-classic villages around it. We have an extensive middle pre-classic occupation just in Northwest Yucatan alone. There are similar middle and early and late, well, when we get to the late pre-classic and the Maya, the Olmec have fallen and the Maya start doing some really cool big city stuff. But in the early and middle pre-classic, there are villages across the entirety of the, the Maya lowlands throughout you know, the Yucatan Peninsula. And no, most of them aren't huge. They're, you know, Stobo, where I worked, was about a square kilometer in extent. And we've got a nice plaza with two eight meter tall pyramids at it. And there's a ball court, which is really cool. You can go to other pretty big sites like Knock Bay down in northern Guatemala, which is you know, a few times bigger than Stobo has this really beautiful pyramid platform architecture known as triadic groups, uh, lots of sock bays or causeways going between different groups in there. There are 
hundreds, if not thousands of middle pre-classic settlements throughout the Maya lowlands. And, you know, there's a handful there. There was a, this is part of the problem in archaeology too. You guys know when something is found first, it becomes the model for what we expect all later discoveries to look like. And way back, the site of Saibal, when the Carnegie Maya people were working there, this is like the 30s or the 40s, there was a cache of jade sculptures that were very similar to some things that have been found in the Olmec world. And so, you know, back in the early 20th century, we started talking about Olmec influence on the pre-classic Maya. And you know what? We have found like two or three other jade caches since then. And we have found hundreds, if not thousands of sites as, as well. Like the narrative has shifted. We've got an extensive middle pre-classic settlement going on throughout the Maya lowlands that sure they're interacting with the Olmec. Sure. They're interacting with the rest of Mesoamerica and the Olmec. Like, I think I get accused every once in a while of downplaying the Olmec. The Olmec are awesome. They're doing amazing, really cool things, but they're not the only game, you know, in town. They're you know far from the only thing going on. Excellent. Well, we have two more segments going on, so we'll be right back after these messages. Building mounds, trade networks, run by chiefs and their families, growing crops in the fields, surplus feed trap specialists, sometimes warfare will threaten you. So you build a palisade But if you meet a weaker tribe Will you take their town by force? Force? Will they be a tribute? So What is a chiefdom? The Celts might have had some fates. Hawaii had feather capes. Olmec traded lots of jade. What is a chiefdom? Is it simple or complex? Spanish went on lots of treks. The Americas got wrecked. What is a chiefdom? Social hierarchy? Welcome back to episode 73 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. David S. Anderson, just to be clear, and there's a couple of those archaeologists out there. And we are talking about ancient civilizations in Central America specifically. And we kind of touched on and mentioned the three geographic areas, kind of the Olmec, the Maya Lowlands, the Zapotec area as well. But we wanted to mention that in the basin of Mexico, there are some things going on during this kind of early and middle or pre-classic kind of era. Uh So what is kind of going on during that time? We got a couple of cool things that are going on in the basin of Mexico. And basin of Mexico archaeology is always a little bit hard because some of, you know, a whole chunk of it's underneath modern day Mexico City, which makes excavations a little bit more difficult sometimes. But there's some really cool stuff. There's some Tlatilco, early pre-classic villages that have been excavated. Tlatilco are early farming villages, but they have some pretty expressive cool. Some of the things they're best known for are sometimes called duality masks. These little ceramic masks that have sort of a line down the middle and it's like one side smiling and one side's frowning and whatnot. They're almost kind of like, you know, Greek comic and tragedy masks in one sense. And so they're, they're really cool. You know, Totilco stuff, is, you know, they're farming villages. We don't know a whole lot about them, but the art they made is so expressive that it just really captures one's imagination. And so there's, there's you know, definite farming villages going on in the area early on. 
there is another thing that really complicates understanding the transition from the late pre-classic into the classic period in the central Mexico. A lot of listeners have probably heard of the city of Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan is this massive, wonderful, classic period urban center in central Mexico. You know, it's about a half hour outside of Mexico City by bus ride, maybe 45 minutes. Like if you owe it to archaeology to go to Teotihuacan, if you're ever in Mexico City, like it is just one of the most amazing places. You know, in its classic period height, it has this beautiful Avenue of the Dead, as it's called down the middle with the Pyramid of the Sun and the Moon on the sides and these incredible, huge urban apartment complexes all along it. Teo got its start in the late pre-classic. Again, you know, kind of like Mexico City, you know, it's hard to know too much about the, you know, the early origins of Teotihuacan because it became this huge classic city that covered 16 square kilometers and was home to 100,000 people or more. It's hard to, to get under that and get a good picture of what was going on before. But one of the things we do know about is another late pre-classic site called Cuicuilco. Cuicuilco is a, you know, found in the southern end of the basin of Mexico and was also thriving in the late pre-classic. And it looks like Teotihuacan and Cuicuilco were kind of, you know, two different centers in the basin, you know, maybe political opponents, maybe friends, we don't really know, but the two growing spaces in that late pre-classic environment. Cuicuilco has a very relatively unusual round pyramid in central Mexico, but then it's it's about 200 AD. Uh, so the late pre-classic is coming to an end and we're sliding into the early classic period. Cuicuilco met a sudden end by volcanic eruption. Because the whole, you know, central Mexico is volcanic in every way, shape, and form. And this is not Pompeii. Pompeii was covered in ash. And people have been excavating it and finding stuff. And you get these really cool plaster molds of, you know, cool, of the people who passed away that, that were at Pompeii. Quiquilco was covered in lava. And it is literally <laughs> like buried in volcanic tuft. <laughs> And so the the archaeology of Cuicuilco is kind of hard to do. There's been some done. There's enough to know what was going on there. But lo and behold, Teotihuacan kind of took off after that and grew a bit larger and had more people because maybe their main political rival in the basin was destroyed by the volcano. (laughs) So there's, there's, you know, you never kind of know what role nature will play in politics, right? Yeah. It seems like that's an easy decision to not go back to that place and and do that over again. It's like, mm, yeah, you know, I'm not sure I want to go back there and you know get burned by lava again, <laughs> or even just yeah. the political and religious theater by the elites of Teotihuacan using yeah. like just you know their moment to be like, well, you see. <laughs> there's a way can, to stop this. <laughs> I can only imagine how this was spun. Yeah, it's like there's. <laughs> They also got plenty of raw obsidian material out of that too, I'm sure. <laughs> I, you know, that's a good question. I don't think I don't think it created any obsidian flows that I'm directly familiar with. Because mm-hmm. yeah, the, uh, the 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 most famous central Mexican obsidian flow is in Puebla, which is further away, called Pachuca. Oh wow! I don't know if you guys have seen this stuff before, but it is like bottle glass green obsidian. Yeah, uh, I've so, seen that know, stuff. Yeah, when it's in a, a solid chunk, it still looks pretty black and it's not that necessarily noticeable. But when you flake it and you get the prismatic blades out of it, yeah, you hold it up to the light and it is amazing. It is like, 
you know, totally green. And it was widely traded as a result because, you know, green as, you know, as a color, as a prestige good was high quality throughout Mesoamerica. And so we end up finding that that central Mexican obsidian sort of widely spread all throughout the Mesoamerica as a result. That's that's way more interesting than the green glass that we find in, you know, the United States, which is usually associated with alcoholism and or something else like that. <laughs> hey, I was just proud we found in our field school this summer, we got a like complete intact Dr. Pepper bottle from like 1940 or earlier. And it was just like, well, yeah, this is yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Well, did we define pre-classic perchance? That would just be like, I guess, like the, the, the Maya proper that we think of with the temple complexes. This is like build up to that. Well, if we're going chronology, sort of the standard chronology for Mesoamerica, we start pre-classic roughly about 2000 BC, and that is sort of this transition from primarily hunting and gathering economies to farming subsistence economies. You know, the, the earliest farming villages vary around the, the region. At this point in the Maya lowlands, we don't have anything earlier than about 1200 BC in terms of farming villages. Some of that's going to be preservation. Some of it might be that they you know, migrated into the area later. And we, we work our way up and, you know, so that we kind of do an early pre-classic period that is like first farming villages until about 800 BC or so. When we 900 BC, depending on your, where you are, the middle preclassic emergence is basically when we start to see political complexity. So San Lorenzo, the Olmec Center we were talking about before, emerges early, and that's definitely hopping by about 1200 BC. And we see some evidence. You know, there's this really cool building called the Red Palace at San Lorenzo, mm-hmm. which is the Red Palace is a bit of an exaggeration in that term palace, but it's twice as big as the other houses at the site. It has a basalt column in the middle of it. It has basalt drain stones underneath it, which regular houses don't have. And so you have that sort of emergence of an economic or political elite in some way, shape or form. And that continues on for a while. And so middle pre-classic throughout the Maya lowlands, throughout central Mexico, into the basin of Mexico, you know, you're seeing the emergence of political elites and you're seeing political complexity grow and late pre-classic is kind of when things get crazy, at least for the Maya anyway. La Venta is the, the later of the two Olmec capitals. It pretty much gives up the ghost by about 400, 300 BC at the end of the middle pre-classic as we're moving into that late pre-classic. And uh, the Olmec, the Olmec are followed by a group of people we very creatively call the Epi-Olmec. And the Epi-Olmec are some of the least known and understood cultures of Mesoamerica because their sites are very poorly preserved, but they started writing and they started writing long texts. And we have like the, the La Mojara Stila. La Mojara Stila number one is one of the coolest monuments ever found in Mesoamerica. It is a late pre-classic monument with a lengthy hieroglyphic inscription on it, with a long count calendar date on it. It was found in a river. We don't really know that much about the rest of the site. Like, you know, what who these people are, we know very little about, but they are writing in a hieroglyphic fashion that is extraordinarily similar to what the Maya start doing in the you know, late pre-classic as well. And that really gets going in the classic period for the Maya. Late pre-classic Maya stuff is is big. This is where I usually throw like lots of pictures at students on, in my classes where I'm like, oh my God, look at this. Look how 
bloody big this is. <laughs> the site that you have to talk about is El Mirador. El Mirador, I mean, I, I have not had the privilege of going. It's in far northern Guatemala. I saw a reconstruction drawing of the Tigre Complex Pyramid at El Mirador when I was an undergrad. And I kid you not, that is why I'm here today. Like, that's why I wanted to do pre-classic Maya. That's what everything it was. The El Mirador site is so big. It has two of the largest Maya pyramids that were ever built. When it was first found, it was just assumed to be classic. Because they're like, well, I mean, that's it must be a classic site. When Ian Graham, who's this incredible pioneer of Maya archaeology, who spent a ton of time going through the jungles, documenting Maya hieroglyphic inscriptions, Graham made it there in the 60s. He was not the first archaeologist there, but he was the first one to draw a decent map of it. Uh, the Carnegie Maya folks were there back in the 1930s, and it's one of those classic stories where they got there, they had run out of water by the time they arrived there, and so they had to leave, and they couldn't really do anything. Uh, Graham got there in the 60s, and he drew this really cool map. And in his, in his publication, he actually says, he says that it must be a different ethnicity. When he sees the site, he knows it's different, but he doesn't, can't put his finger on why. But, I, well, he knows there's no hieroglyphic inscriptions. There are no monuments. There are no stela. He's been spending you know, years upon years of his life documenting stela and hieroglyphic inscriptions. And here is one of the biggest sites he's ever been to, and there are no hieroglyphic inscriptions. And it's just a big WTF moment for him. And it turns out, and you know, we had some excavations in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s at the site. And gradually... I. I've actually was trying to piece this together once a while ago, and I never found the aha moment. But at some by the 90s, the archaeologists working there finally realized it is all pre-classic. Like it's just insane. Like, and, and we're talking like the Tigray Pyramid Complex is 55 meters tall. It's it's an Acropolis complex. There are little buildings all through this thing, all over the place. And an extraordinarily small percentage of this has ever been excavated by an archaeologist named Richard Hansen. And it's it's incredible. And the Danta complex is 70-some meters tall, which is across at the other end of the site and is only partially known. Hansen was made the news uh, – well, he's made the news for – worse reasons recently. But a couple of years ago, he made the news for some stucco sculptures that he found at the Danta complex, which Carlton knows where I'm going to go on this. Hansen called them the hero twins. <laughs> They're two guys. Carlton had to sit through classes with me, so he knows how I feel about this stuff. If you've heard of the Maya hero twins, good on you. You're like, you're in the loop here. The Maya hero twins are these really cool culture history heroes that we know from a book called The Popol Vuh. Popol Vuh wasn't written down till after colonial occupation, and it was written down by the Quiche Maya, or actually some Spanish priests working with the Quiche Maya in Highland Guatemala. We're talking about something that's like 2,000 years earlier than that. And my big problem with, with hero twin identification is that you know, a lot, Hansen and a lot of other scholars do this, and I'm, I'm actually in a minority here, so maybe I'm the wrong one, but Maya art is not personified. They don't, you know, it's not the warts and all of the Romans. They don't, you know, depict someone as they actually looked in life. Everybody looks the same. And you might get a hieroglyphic label that says this is, you know, a how so-and-so, or this might be the queen so-and-so and whatnot. Otherwise, everybody kind of looks the same. And there's a tremendous tendency when anybody finds two people in a picture, two men, I should say, in a picture to say, well, those are the hero twins. 
And that's when I'm holding out my hair and saying, but all guys in Maya art kind of look the same. And so calling them the Hero Twins with no other identifying features kind of annoys me. But he found this really, really, really cool stucco sculpture that clearly shows some, some Maya men in an aquatic setting. And there's some really cool stuff going on. This is absolutely one of the coolest archaeological sites that has ever been found. It's to this day, it last, last time I heard, I think it's a two-day mule trek to get there or a helicopter ride to get there. This is an wow. incredibly remote setting in the present day. Hansen made the news, like, I guess a year or two ago. I think it was pre-pandemic. Uh, less nicely. He was basically trying to get some U.S. senators to help bankroll turning the, the region into sort of a theme park. Oh, uh, yeah, this is it, that. Yeah. Yeah, Vice News did a whole breakdown where, you know, like I would I would just tell people to watch the video and listen to Hanson and what he says. Like, I'm not going to put any words in his mouth, but I think the words that come out of his mouth are pretty bad in that interview. Yeah, they're not great. No, they're not great. Two things. One, someone recently emailed me asking for help and knowledge in identifying hero twin stories on the Great Plains. And I haven't responded to that because I immediately (laughs) thought of you. And then second, so you said LaDonta is 172 meters? 70 meters. Just 70. Yeah. Okay. This no, not 170 meters. I'm this infographic is wrong. Cause, no, because I'm looking at an infographic and it says 172 meters. No, 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 no. Oh. This, uh, this, this, all the, to all the listeners out there, this is that you cannot trust everything you look up on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's showing that it's taller than Khufu's pyramid, which is like weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was immediately. I, yeah. Is, is Khufu's pyramid is, is 400 feet or 400 meters? I, I'm going to get it's that It's 139 wrong. meters. 139 meters. Okay. Yeah. No, it is not taller than Khufu's Pyramid. Okay. I was about to get blown away. But Chimu <laughs> Adventures uh, for your Guatemalan tours and travel, don't, you're lying. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if these are the, the same people. There was, there was definitely a, a friend sent me a link back in like 2011 before the whole Maya 2012 debacle. And it was a, a tourism company offering tours to the Maya world. And basically on their flyer, they said, like, come and see the Maya sites before 2012, before the end of the world. And then at the very end of their flyer, they're like, and we have our own scholars who have uh, done their own calculations. And it turns out the end of the world's coming even sooner. Book your tour now. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like Zorp on Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Fantastic. We will put a link to the Vice News article and in, in the description. And my vice right now is Maya archaeology. And on that note, we are going to end wow. this segment and go to segment three. Social hierarchy. People now are less free. Cling it had Moya teas. What is a chief dumb? Cahokia. Laventa. What is a chief dumb? Do we really know what a chiefdom is? Is it really a thing? Can archaeology help us to see what we want to know? It's a mystery. Welcome back to episode 73 of a Life Runners podcast. We're here with Dr. Anderson talking about pre-Columbian civilizations in Mesoamerica. And yeah, I think this is a potpourri section. 
So what would you like to talk about? Uh, yeah, it's, I was telling you guys before we started, this is, this is the stuff I'm used to doing with my images too, where I can like slam these big giant pyramid pictures in your face. But I think the really cool thing that has always stuck with me is how the transition from the late pre-classic to the classic period for the Maya, you know, this, this is going to happen, you know, around 200 AD, 400 AD as it happens. For most people, if you've seen a Maya monument, a, a Maya pyramid, you've seen a, a classic period thing. And you've mostly seen something from, you know, about 600 to 900 AD, which is the, the zenith of complexity and expansion of classic Maya power. There's something really wild that happens at the end of the late pre-classic as we move into the early classic that we don't fully you know, have enough data on yet. El Mirador Falls. We have the largest, you know, one of the largest Maya cities ever built with some of the, with the largest pyramids Maya people ever built and it collapses. And it's, it's a pretty good parable, I think, for modern day. And again, we don't have a ton of evidence, but the city is surrounded by bajos, these lowland swamps. And what is very clear in some cores that were done by an old colleague of mine, Bruce Dolan, is that... The, there was a tremendous amount of erosion. He did some cores and excavations in the Bajo swamps, and there are these huge layers of sediments eroding from the lands surrounding the, the Bajos in, into them. And, you know, he posited that this is massive deforestation. And certainly, you know, the El Mirador was a big place. They were clearly, you know, growing a lot of corn to feed those people. Every single building was covered in plaster, sometimes thick, thick plaster. Some of the plaster floors at El Mirador are crazy. They're like half a meter thick sometimes because they would just renew them over and over again. And every time you make plaster, you've got to burn limestone and that needs more trees too. And so, you know, between feeding people and building this site, there's no doubt they were cutting down huge swaths of the, of the jungle around them. And lo and behold, yeah, there are huge layers of erosion showing up in those bajos. And so clearly there is some form in, of environmental collapse that happens that brings an end to the El Mirador city-state or, or nation or whatever we want to call it. And a lot of... Not all, but a lot of our other late pre-classic sites are become uh, abandoned as well. Like Knock Bay continued. Knock Bay was going in the middle pre-classic. I mentioned it continues in the late pre-classic some, but it gets more or less abandoned. The whole area that's been known as the Mirador Basin, sort of the, which apparently is not actually a basin, so that's a misnomer. But all of the area around Mirador, which was thriving, kind of fizzles as a result of this. And we see a new order come into place. And one of the best known is Tikal. Tikal is a real oddity in the Maya world because not only does it thrive in the classic period, but Tikal lived through the late pre-classic and the middle pre-classic without the same sort of major interruptions that happened at El Mirador. There is a, a great middle pre-classic occupation at the site of Tikal, best known from some excavations in the 90s in a group called the Mundo Perdido group, which if you know anything about Maya archaeology, was actually one of the early E-groups. E-groups are, you know, it's a long debate about what these represented, but they have some association with solar astronomy. Uh, they have alignments with uh, solstices and equinoxes. Tikal had an early, uh, or excuse me, had a middle pre-classic e-group that was expanded through the middle pre-classic and was expanded through the late pre-classic and Mirador Falls and Tikal just keeps chugging along. And in the early classic, Tikal starts to produce 
the Stila cult complex that we're so uh, accustomed to with the classic Maya. Uh, in the classic Maya period, like the classic Maya are best known for their hieroglyphic writing. And one of the things that the, the main thing they did with that was erect these stela, these standing stone monuments that have, would have a portrait of a ruler on one side, and then there would usually be sort of a lengthy inscription about how awesome that ruler was on the sides or the backs and tell make sure the people knew all the good things that that ruler did for the people. And Tikal you know, is where, you know, it's not the only place by any stretch of the imagination where we see this kind of transition, but Tikal is one of these few places where there's this nice, steady passage from that from that early that pre-classic era into the classic period and we start to see the growth of these maya polities there's some other cool stuff going on like the we need more data we need way more data which is also another thing again if you, i know you guys have some some listeners who are interested in getting into archaeology i've totally had students ask me this before like is there anything left to do oh good god yes there is tons to do everywhere you go in the world you know, it's like, yes, we've had 100 years of archaeology, but we need many hundred years more. El Mirador, Kalakmul, which was a neighbor of El Mirador that was doing some similar things. We had this emphasis on huge Acropolis buildings like the Tigray complex, uh, which were these gigantic pyramid complexes, and they were decorated with large stucco masks. These things go away. And then in the classic, we see this emergence of these stela and altar complex, where the classic Maya rulers are exalting themselves on these stela. There are other sites. One of my favorite sites in the late pre-classic that, you know, suggests, you know, maybe, you know, something going more similar to Tikal. If you've not seen the San Bartolo murals, like that is like everybody stop and go look those up right now. The San Bartolo murals are late pre-classic Maya murals that are some of the best preserved murals that have ever been found in this humid tropical jungle place. And so you don't get very many things like this. Clearly very focused on rulership. They were first found by archaeologist William Saturno back in the early 2000s. And there's this little room that's a late pre-classic room on the back of a later classic pyramid. And the whole top like sort of rim or you know, sort of border around the top of this room was covered in this, this mural, this very narrative style mural where you see people walking from place to place and different things happening along that route. And it's very rulership focused. One of the, the I get the North and the West wall confused. There are two preserved walls. The, these, uh, and I forget which one is which. They were both reproduced by artist Heather Hurst. And she actually won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work on her reproductions of these murals because her work is just stunningly beautiful. And you know, one of the walls ends in the scene where some sort of crown of rulership is being handed up to somebody sitting on a giant sort of seat. So it looks a lot like a ruler being passed a crown. But leading up to that, uh, this is where we get some of our early views of Maya mythology and religious beliefs and what they're thinking, what they're doing. Leading up to that is a series of images of a male walking up to a variety of different trees. Uh, there's definitely a cacao tree in there. There's a saba tree in there and a couple others. And they are practicing genital bloodletting at each tree. And this is one, like, we knew that Maya priests and rulers practice genital bloodletting. We've known it for a while. But when you get to the classic period, they don't really show it. It's like he's got his knees up and there's a stingray spine sticking between his legs. And you don't really know what's going on. Uh, in the San Bartolo murals, you see a man holding his penis in his hand and jabbing a giant stingray spy into it and 
drops of blood flying like in every absolute direction. Painted by Quentin Tarantino. Yes. It is like full on <laughs> everything you could possibly like. Yes. And it's, it's extraordinary. And, and these are my, my favorite thing about the San Bartolo murals. Like if you look at the art in these, this was not somebody's first painting. This is not somebody screwing around, trying to figure out what they want to do. This is incredible detail. This is incredible artistry. This is incredibly laid out with a very specific meaning behind it. That's how much we've lost, right? Like this is the one that survived. There were hundreds of these or at least dozens of these. At the, you know, like this was a normal thing that people were doing. And, you know, when it comes to a human jungle environment, it's just not going to survive. And so, you know, we might get lucky and find another one of these someday, but we will never find even remotely the the corpus of all these that, that were. Because the, the stele, as you're saying, preserved because they're just big blocks of rock that are that are carved into but these things these san bartolo murals are completely different and that they're actually like art on on a wall and the one i looked at yeah you can definitely see the stingray spine and and the quentin tarantino blood associated with it it's 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 crazy One one of my colleagues was presenting this in class and one of the male students in the class passed out when he put this up on the screen so this is not for the faint of heart if you haven't googled it already (laughs) That's intense. You guys want to do some experimental art? No, I'm good. Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> hard, hard pass. I, I should say, though, because to, to make this fair, this is actually something I like to talk about in my classes because there's, a, especially when you get to the classic period, we don't know as much for the pre-classic, but when you do the classic period for the Maya, there is a, a gendered pattern of bloodletting where uh, male rulers and priests were doing genital bloodletting. They were doing other things too. They were letting their, they were cutting their ears and and, uh, doing other blood scattering rituals and whatnot. But there is a a female ritual as well that we only see women doing. Actually, somebody showed me once uh, a pot showing a a man doing this. But so there's one counter example that, that I know of. But we see a pretty strong gendered pattern where males are doing this genital bloodletting. And what we see women do, and the best examples of this come from the site of Yashchilan, was pulling a thorned rope through their tongue. And this is, you know, followed by, you know, if we look at the narrative scenes that are presented in the lintels at Yashchilan, followed by some hallucinations that happen afterwards, possibly from blood loss and pain, but certainly also possibly for some other reasons. Uh, and so, it's not just the guys who have a hard time of this. They're, the women had their own hard time in this process. Hmm. And that was to communicate with like deities, right? Yeah. The, the Yashchilan lintels, these are classic Maya lintels, you know, from like seven, 800 AD. They're really cool. There is a whole series of them, a lintel. Uh, it's easier when I can point to this, but it's the cross piece at the top of a door. And so uh, to see these, you would have had to walk into the doorway and look straight up. But the, the site is known for these incredibly narrative-esque lintels. And there are several series of them that show, for this issue in particular, some of the female rulers of the site, female elite of the site, letting blood, and then you know, letting that blood spill down into a bowl. And then the next, and that bowl will be uh, filled with paper. And that blood would spatter down onto that paper. And then in and, and other scenes, we see that same bowl full of that same paper lit on fire. And the smoke curls up from the fire. And then out of that smoke, you see a spiral of a, a vision serpent. 
and the serpent always has its mouth open and there is a, a human figure emerging out of that mouth. And so this would appear in some way, shape or form to be you know, a, a means of contacting ancestors or, or contacting another world and interacting with that spirit world in some way, shape or form. Hmm. There's only a, a couple things in archaeology that make me like cringe, like deep down inside. One of them is the elongation of skulls you see mm, in, yeah. in South, South America. That sounds terrible. Also, trepanning of those skulls mm-hmm. also sounds awful and painful. But a lot of the, the Maya rituals that you see and that are mentioned also make me, I, w- I would be one of those people that passed out in class because it's yeah. it's intense, but it's it's cool to see that stuff preserved and to understand that we can double down on it because there's definitely there's definitely skull binding that happens in the maya world too so we get them both yeah actually oh i can i can take it another step for you if you want dental modification so the classic maya rulers uh, would file their teeth and also drill little holes in them and embed jade into them. And so they would actually like sort of decorate their teeth. And you know, there's there's no Novocaine going on with that uh, process whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I could see one like ambitious, like Spanish priest that was a translator be like, okay, I'm, I'm guys, I'm cool with everything else. Like, that's fine. <laughs> but like this one, let's, let's, let's do away with that one. <laughs> Didn't they yeah, portray that yeah. in Apocalypto? Like both the elongated heads and the mm-hmm. jade? I mean. Yeah. Okay. yeah Apocalypto yeah. had the jade inlays on the teeth. You know, I was, they did do that. This is, I don't know, like I, you guys obviously have seen this movie or you've heard of it at least. It seems like I'm grateful that more and more of my undergrads have not heard of this movie any longer. But the, you know, Mel Gibson directed a Maya movie back early 2000s that come out. It, uh, I was in grad school, school when it came out. Late 2000s. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it was definitely like it, it was very problematic, and and in the way it, it sort of mushes together pre-classic, the classic, and the post-classic all in sort of one scene, and suggests that you know Maya farmers had no idea there was a city about you know a five-hour walk away from where they were living. They knew that they would have known that. There was definitely one like the movie was shot where all the actors were speaking Yucatec Mayan, which was cool. And I liked the idea. And it was, but it was one of those moments where I went to see the movie when it came out in the theater and I was watching it. I felt really good where I was watching the movie. I'm like, I understand what they're saying. My Yucatec's pretty good. <laughs> and then I realized, no, no, just everyone, everyone but two people in the movie learned Yucatec just for the movie. And it's so like all of their lines were like really basic expressions. Mm. And I was like, oh, no, I'm just, you know, barely keeping up here is actually what's going on. <laughs> I, I did like like the obviously it was incorrect in every single way, but like the set design and like just you got to see like a, you know, like a bustling Mayan or Central American city, which you don't really get to see in movies. But the worst part of it is like that's people's perception of it now, and it's not correct. Yeah, it was. That was what I was really hoping for. When Apocalypto came out, I'm like, all right, we're gonna get some good visuals. So we're gonna see what the Maya world looked like and introduce people to that. And it was, it was decent. It did some good things, but it also did. You know, there's a shot. We were talking about Elmer Mirador. There was a shot in that scene where they very directly lifted a, a recreation painting of what Elmer Mirador looked like. And they use it as the backdrop or the inspiration for the city in the movie. But it's it's that problematic shot where, wait a second, El Mirador was this like, huge place that, that oh, I'm, now I'm blanking on, on the right names here, but this is like, this was not a place. 
that looked like a Maya city. This looked wrong when archaeologists first started going there and we finally realized that it was pre-classic and not you know, classic and that was what was wrong about it. They used a pre-classic city as a backdrop for what was in the movie presented as a classic period story. And then the Spanish showed up, which that doesn't happen for another 500 years. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, this is, I say this a lot, you know, in another example, I use another, we talk about this in some of my classes. If you look at the, the animated film, El Dorado, they kind of did the same thing where they just pick and choose a whole bunch of stuff in the backgrounds from like, it's Maya, it's Latin American, whatever, just throw it in there. I would compare that to, you know, movies set in Europe, like, you know, the Hunchback of Notre Dame cartoon or, you know, any of Mel Gibson's other historic epics. They don't make those same background mistakes. The Hunchback of Notre Dame cartoon doesn't have, you know, the Roman Colosseum as, you know, the same time period as yeah. the Cathedral of Notre Dame. That's the kind of mistakes that are happening in the background of Apocalypto. And, you know, it's... I don't expect my fiction to be 100% accurate, you know, and, and I shouldn't, we shouldn't have to expect our fiction to be 100% accurate. But, you know, there, there's there's something going on here where the European fiction and the Western fiction is way more accurate than that depicting Native American populations and Latin American populations and whatnot. And it's, they can do a little more research, you know, it's like they could have just picked Tikal and used all buildings from Tikal and used that as their inspiration for the movie and it would have been fine. But they, they picked and chose these different things and mushed them together when they didn't belong from the same time period. And you get this like really bad mismatch as a result. Well, and that's, and that's frustrating because you consult one archaeologist, one myotologist and be like, okay, this is the time period I'm looking for. This is the location I'm looking for. What? How do I portray that? And it's it's, it's an easy solution, it seems. I didn't come to like to attack anyone, but since we're here, Richard Hansen <laughs> was the, the the consultant for the movie, and since we've already <laughs> talked about him, like, so full circle. <laughs> we're kind of, yeah, it's it's full circle. So <laughs> he is like I've had some very nice, pleasant interactions with him. He does some really good archaeological work, but uh, he has been mixed up in some problematic things too. Vice News and Apocalypto. All right. Well, before we end the show, Dr. Anderson, what are a couple sources, you know, like one to three books, articles, videos, et cetera, that you would recommend for anyone interested in learning about the formation of states here in Mesoamerica or the, or the Maya or even mm. just general Mezo? You know, Chris Poole's Olmec book, I'm going to forget, I think it's, I'm going to forget the exact title. So I'll give you guys some links and you can put them up and whatnot. But Chris Poole's book on the Olmec is fantastic. It is the best one out there. There are some other competing ones that are okay, but they, in my opinion, they fall into that mother camp culture uh, category and they, they you know, don't necessarily give you the right representation of this stuff. Francisco Estrada Belli has a really good book on formative Maya stuff that's nice and readable. I'm trying to think of another good pre-classic book. We got lots of tons and tons of good pre-classic articles to read out there, but it has not been as well represented in the book world. My favorite, actually, I'll throw this, this is, this goes back to my undergrad days. My, my professor in undergrad was David Grove. And David Grove did absolutely fantastic middle pre-classic excavations at a site called Chakatsingo that we haven't uh, got to talk about tonight. Really cool site. Has one of the greatest monuments that's just like this giant open mouth. 
and it was set at the doorway of a temple. And so like to get in and out of this, you would have been going in and out of this giant mouth. And it's just this wonderful monument. David Grove retired a few years ago and wrote this fantastic narrative of what it's like to do archaeology in Mexico. And you know, he got, he has, it is full of, of not his juiciest stories that he told us in class sometimes, but it is full of a lot of good stories about what it's like to do pre-classic archaeology in Mexico. And it is just fun and rip rollicking and a good time. And so I highly recommend that to anyone you know, you don't want you want to know not just what archaeology is, but what it's like to be an archaeologist. That is a, a definitely a good one. Excellent. And all those will be in the description for our listeners who are interested. So you can find links for that where you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. And uh, where can our listeners find you on social media or like academia and stuff? Yeah, you can find me basically on all the social medias as DSA Archaeology. I'm on Twitter most of all, but I've got a, a Facebook account and a Instagram account under those. And I don't know. I, everyone keeps trying to push me into TikTok, but I'm not sure I'm quite ready. Dude, you <laughs> would crush it at TikTok um, with your retorts on things. Like that's what people like on there. But anyway, yeah. But it's also a dark, dark world. That's such a dark yeah. world. Is, yeah. yeah. I'm already on Twitter and I think that's enough dark worlds for me right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. David Anderson. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook as DSA Archaeology, not to be confused with Democratic Socialist something. <laughs> you mentioned it last time you were on. So. I, I have definitely been accused to be the oh, it's the De Democratic Socialists of America, I think it is. DSA just happens to be my initials. Like, I'm not trying to make a political statement one way or another. We can have that conversation later. <laughs> but yes, it's just my initials. Excellent. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and provide us with feedback on whichever podcasting platform you guys listen to us on. Send us an email, smoke signal, you know, the usual. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Thanks. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Oh, they're both bad. I have two of them, but we'll see. So, gents, the mind's taught me that if you don't finish something, it's not really the end of the world. Oh. Oof. <laughs> Mel Gibson's Spaniards are on the way, so we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> okay, second one. Back in 2011, my friend predicted the, the world would end in 2012. I said, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Cotter. Processual say You're too evolutionary Are they too hard? Are you out of date? Are you still useful for comparison? This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.